Well, good morning, friends. As the team comes down, let me add my welcome. My name's Rob. I'm a pastor here. We're glad that you are with us this morning. We enjoyed our stay at the Marriott last week, but we're glad to be back here at the Sherwood Center. Between 1958 and 1968, a Russian novelist, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, wrote a memoir or a history of his time in the Soviet Union prison camps. They were called gulags. His work is called the Gulag Archipelago. Um, And in it, he said that while he was laying there on some rotting straw, that um, it was disclosed to him that the line separating good and evil um, doesn't pass through states nor does it pass between classes, um, nor Washington, D.C. friends. He said, nor does it pass between political parties. Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes through the heart of every human. This morning when we look at this story that Chin Chin just read, this story of Jesus, he talks about how are we to deal with this evil? How are we to deal with our evil and process it? And also, how are we to deal with the evil of others when it comes crashing into our lives? And if we hope to understand Christianity, if we hope to understand how we can navigate this life and our relationships uh, and our current climate that is... um, divided and charged, uh, then we need to understand what Jesus is getting at in this story. So I'm going to pray for us uh, and ask God to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, Lord, it stands forever. Uh, Our great need, each and every one of us this morning, is to see Jesus. And so would you open our eyes by your grace that we might see our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Guys, realize Christmas is like just over a couple months away, right? Kids, Christmas is coming. Adults, Christmas is coming. In my small hometown where I grew up, uh, every year around Christmas, the children of the town wrote their letters to Santa Claus and then they sent them into the newspaper, all right? And the newspaper would publish all the town's children's letters to Santa Claus, right? Local journalism at its finest. Um, at my house here in Mantua, there is a, a, an edition there from the early 1980s of one of these Christmas letter newspapers, right? Uh, in it, you'll find letters asking for G.I. Joe toys, um, Cabbage Patch Kids, a pony. And there's also a letter in it, um, short, direct, to the point. It says, Dear Santa Claus, how do you get to South America? Robert Yancey. (laughs) Right? Like that was my letter to Santa Claus. Apparently in second grade, uh, I was concerned about the logistics. Like how does this all work? Right? Like I, I need to know how, you know, it's a big world, lots of kids. How are you getting to South America? And it's a logistical question that actually gets Jesus to tell this story. Right? Because, uh, Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, Jesus has talked to his disciples and he's, he's helped them see, hey, when you've been wronged, when, when someone else's evils crashed into your life, the way Jesus puts it is when your brother has sinned against you, here's what you need to do. Imagine that Jesus anticipates that within the community of Christians, we're going to hurt each other. 
that things are going to go south and that we're going to inflict pain on one another. And so he spells out, here's how we're supposed to respond. This is the process we go through. Peter hears that and he says, okay, well, that's all well and good, but I've got a logistical question. When my brother sins against me, how many times am I supposed to forgive him? Peter says, seven times? Like, is that, you know... We need to know he thinks he's being extreme when he says that, right? Rabbinic Jewish tradition would have said you should forgive someone three times when they sin against you. Uh, Peter's like, okay, well, I'm going to double that seven times or more than double that. Remember, I'm not good at math. Um, And Jesus says, no, actually, uh, Peter, you're not even close. Um, You need to multiply your standard by about 70. Uh, And we need to understand Jesus isn't after an arithmetic lesson here. Uh, He's wanting Peter to see that for a follower of Christ, forgiveness is a way of life. All right. Jesus isn't saying, oh, yeah, when you get to number 78, then you can go, aha, judgment. He's saying, no, forgiveness for the Christian is is unlimited. We are called to forgive as a way of life. And to drive that point home, as is his habit, he tells this story. And I do want us to move out of the, the, the cleanness and safety of the theoretical this morning. I do want us to think, as we move to this story about forgiveness, who is it hard for you to forgive? All right, like, let's just go there. From your past, in your present, in your family, at work, teenagers, hey, there is a world of hurt that um, flows through text messages and on social media and in the hallways of our schools. Who is it hard for you to forgive? Let's think about that question as we come to this story. Uh, as, as Jesus tells the story, we see that he talks about a great debt, a great mercy, and a great exchange. A great debt, a great mercy, and a great exchange. Verses 23 and verses 24, Jesus goes, uh, kind of sets the scene for us. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is, or the way that God works is something like this. Like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. All right. So ancient Near East context, kings have all the money. Uh, They loan it out to their officials to make trade happen, to make infrastructure happen. So all of the king's money or a lot of it goes out to the officials, servants to make this stuff happen. But then the king, this king's settling up accounts. Right, And we're told one comes with 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, how much is that? All right, 10,000 of anything is a lot. Kids, if you wanted to count to 10,000 a day, it would take you something like two hours, all right? And probably annoy your parents if you did it, all right? So I'm not suggesting it. 10,000 of anything is a lot, but a talent is the highest um, kind of standard measurement for a metal, uh, gold, copper, silver, whatever it might be. There's different numbers, guys. Um, some would say... Uh, a laborer would earn one talent in a year or a year and a half. Some would say a laborer might earn a talent in 20 years. All right. The point is, this is an unfathomably large number, like a minimum of 10,000 years worth of labor. All right. So, um, For our purposes, we use words like zillion, right? He had a zillion dollars. We just make up words to to kind of communicate this large number. If it were today, we'd probably say, okay, well, take the finances of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, you know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, multiply all those by a thousand. That's how much this servant was in debt. Um. 
This obviously wasn't a household servant. This was some sort of official that had either grossly mismanaged all that he had been given or was up to some kind of crazy corruption. Either way, he's in fantastic debt. And friends, we need to understand that in this story, uh, all of us are that servant. Like the Christian message is all of us uh, are in that kind of debt when it comes to our relationship with our creator. The message of this Bible, um, the message of Christianity is that humans were created and that in the garden we were blessed with all kinds of riches. We were, um, we were uh, humans were provided with all that they needed and all that they longed for there in the garden. Those kinds of riches. Humans were created uniquely among all other creatures in the image of their creator. So uh, humans were uniquely given um, uh, a power, a creativity, a moral and intellectual capacity. All these things have been given to us. All right, humans were given uh, the task and the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. Um, we have been given much by our Creator. And the story of this Bible and Christianity is even though we were entrusted and given much, we betrayed our Creator, we rejected Him, and we turned away. We've wasted it. We are in debt to our Creator. And if we don't understand that, if we don't get that, we don't see it, we don't understand Christianity. You might be here, you might be new this morning visiting us, you're not ready to accept what the Bible says, and we're glad that you're here. Um, I was reminded this week of a saying that says, um, none of us would have any friends if everyone knew exactly what we thought. If everyone knew um, if there was a transcript, I mean, just run that test over the next 24 hours. Think about all of your thoughts, all right? And I'm not contending that all of my thoughts are terrible. I have good, kind, nice thoughts. But I also have thoughts that I would be incredibly ashamed of. Um, I imagine we have thoughts that our wives, our friends, our community groups, uh, we would be terrified if they knew what we thought, right? We instinctively know that there is a brokenness. I am well aware that the line between good and evil, as Solzhenitsyn says, it runs through this heart and that there is an evilness, a brokenness in, inside there. I think we also know that instinctively evil wrong needs needs judgment needs to be paid for needs to be accounted for at least that's what we think when we see it in other people's lives we're not sure about that in our life but in other people's lives we know instinctively hey this needs to be paid for taken care of uh punished and that's what we see happen that the, the king's response is that he ordered this servant to be sold with his wife and child and all that he had in payment to be made if we don't get the, uh, uh, this idea of this great debt, then we don't get Christianity. If we don't get this, we don't get grace. We need to understand this great debt. And actually, this story would be incredibly depressing if it ended right now. But, but thank goodness it doesn't. This great debt is met with a great mercy. You guys notice the servant's response? Um, the servant responds to this threat of punishment in quite a delusional way, right? What does he say? He doesn't ask for the one thing he needs. He says, um, hey, king, please be patient and I'll do what? I'll pay everything I owe. 
We've talked about how big this debt is. So he's, he's delusional either about his ability to generate income or he's delusional about the king's accounting practices. One way or the other, he's still thinking to himself, I can fix this. It's not that bad. And friends, if we're honest with ourselves, that's a pretty common response to us as well. We like to minimize things. We think when it comes to the evil inside of me or the, the, the wrong that I've done, we think, well, you know what? I can kind of fix it or it's not really that bad. He made a promise he could never keep. I'll pay it all back. How many of us have made promises we can't keep? I won't go there again. I'm not going to say that again. I'm not going to sleep with him again. We make promises thinking that we can fix it. And this is what makes Christianity unique among other worldviews, other religions. It's this. Christianity teaches us you can't fix it. There's nothing you can do to earn. There's nothing you can do to pay off this debt, right? Even your religious activity, your debt is so great that, hey, coming to church an hour a week, you know, giving a little bit more money, uh, being a little bit more kind, that's not going to take care of your debt. In fact, we're, we're well aware, right, that religious activity can be done for all kinds of selfish and self-centered motives. The servant can't fix it, and the king knows that. And so he says, listen, um, this is what I'll do. It says, verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. All right, we're going to come back to this pity that we see in the king, the compassion that we see in the king. But what I want us to see uh, clearly right here when we see this great mercy is that this forgiveness costs the king. All right, it's not like the, 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 money, the, the debt went away. The king just said, I'm going to take care of the debt. I'm, not gonna, I'm going to release you, servant, and I'm going to take care of this. This debt is now my problem to deal with. It is a very costly forgiveness. All right, some of you guys know I like the, the story Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. All right, I shared this illustration with JT, and he was like, again with the Les Miserables? But I was like, hey, it's been at least six months since I've talked about it. So if we could have a little arrangement where every six months I get to use a Les Mis illustration. Um, you, you know many of you the famous scene there, right, where the bishop uh, welcomes uh, Valjean into his house, uh, exercises hospitality, fixes him a meal, gives him a place to lay his head. Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night, steals his silverware, takes off. He's apprehended, brought back, uh, claims that the bishop gave it to him. And the bishop says, oh, yes, I did. And he scolds Valjean. You forgot the candlesticks, right? Like this tremendous picture of forgiveness. But you don't know unless you've read uh, Hugo's novel that uh, in the beginning of the story, Hugo makes it abundantly clear that the bishop has chosen a very humble lifestyle. He, he makes it plain that uh, when, when faced with the opportunity, the bishop chooses humility in his living arrangements, uh, in the way that he goes about his life, except he has this one little treasure. The kind, of, kind of the one little thing he holds on to in life are these silver knives and forks and these candlesticks. They're, they're his one treasure in life. So we see when Valjean takes that and when he comes back and, and when he gives that away, that this episode of forgiveness is very costly to the bishop. It, it takes away his treasure. It cost him a great deal. In this story, forgiveness costs the king a great deal. Mercy is costly. 
So we see a great debt, we see a great mercy, and then we go on to the final part of the story, a great exchange. And if we're honest, the story here gets kind of nuts, right? Jesus does it, uh, it says the servant was released, and uh, all of a sudden he comes to someone who owes him 100 denarii. And again, for conversion's sake, that's something like 100 days worth of work. All right, hey, and that's not nothing, right? If you took 100 days worth of my salary, that's going to hurt, right? Like, I'm going to feel that, and that's going to be hard. We're going to have issues. It's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what this servant's just been, you know, 10,000 years worth of salary versus 100 days, obviously incomparable, but it's still something, and we don't want to uh, negate that. But Jesus doesn't talk about initially any words being exchanged. Dude just goes up to the guy that owes him 100 denarii and starts choking him, right? Like, that escalates quickly. It's funny, the guy that owed 100 denarii makes the exact same plea. Have patience with me and I'll pay back all that I owe. But instead of the response of the king, this servant actually has none of it. He refuses to show mercy, puts him in uh, jail until all of his debt can be paid. Thankfully, this is one of those parables that Jesus explains. Um. Jesus says, Peter, uh, do you want to know what forgiveness is all about? Forgiveness is costly, and it means showing mercy. We see that uh, there's an audience that catches what the first servant does to the second service, and they tell the king, and the king brings that servant back in and says, hey, um, you were forgiven much. You were shown much mercy. You should have shown mercy. You didn't. And so now you're going to receive judgment. And Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter, that's how my Father in heaven responds to those who don't forgive. It's a very serious and stern warning. Forgiveness is part of the Christian life. A great debt a great mercy, a great expectation. That is, the, the king expects his servant to forgive. God expects his people to forgive. So let's, let's go back to where we started. Peter says, okay, Jesus, how, how do I do this? You, you've told me I'm to forgive seven times uh, 70. How, how do I do this? As we wade into how we apply this truth to our life, I want to uh, acknowledge a couple of things. When it comes to forgiveness, it's very personal. It can, it can often be very complex. But I want you to walk away this morning knowing two things. You have been forgiven much and you are called to forgive. Right, We've got to be clear about that. And this story uh, makes it plain that forgiveness creates an emotional debt. When we are hurt, when we are wronged, when our mother-in-law wrongs us, <laughs> Uh, when our uh, classmate wrongs us, when our spouse wrongs us, an emotional debt is created. And we have to deal with that. You have one of two ways to deal with that. You can make the other person pay the debt, or you can choose to pay the debt. Let me put a couple of disclaimers in here, too, while we're talking about forgiveness, because I think it's helpful. Um, I'm not suggesting that if someone's legally wronged you, 
that you shouldn't take legal action. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about um, you should, uh, forgiveness means enabling harmful or abusive behavior or that somehow you should stay in abusive relationships. I'm not saying any of that. I'm talking to us about how we deal with the emotional debt that's been created. Remember, Jesus even says at the end of the passage, you must forgive them from your heart. This is how do I deal with the internal dynamics of this pain that's been created? Uh, a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, has been helpful in, in thinking about this. And so uh, he puts it this way. He, he frames it just like I've said it. Uh, with this debt that's been created, I can make others pay for it or I can choose to pay for it myself. So, uh, again, real talk. How do we make others pay for the debt that they've created by doing us wrong? Um, we start being cold to them. We, uh, we're mean back to them. We hurt them back relationally or professionally. Uh, we say mean things to them. That, that's, how we, that's how we make them pay the debt, right? We do that directly. Sometimes we're, we make them pay the debt indirectly. We'll just gossip about them. We'll just slander them to other people. We, we make them pay the debt. And why do we do this? Because if we're honest, for a little while it makes us feel better. Right. Like like seeing them squirm and seeing them suffer and seeing them pay, it does start to pay that debt down for us emotionally. And it starts to there's something that makes us feel better about that. Um, But the sad reality is um, operating that way also changes us. That when we start to, to feel better because we see someone else suffer, when we start to feel better because we see someone else in pain, we start to get swept up into that, and that starts to change who we are. That starts to warp us and to transform us. It leads us to being a cynical people, a people that live in self-pity, a, see, a people that are hardened. So while it might feel better for a time, it changes us. So our, our alternative is to pay the debt ourselves. When, when, we, when someone's wronged us, when someone's hurt us, we can choose to absorb that debt and to pay it ourselves. Um, and that hurts, right? When we, when we choose um, not to return evil for evil, that hurts. When we choose not to rub their nose in the fact that they hurt us, that hurts. When we choose not to bring it up again and remind them of the hurt they've caused, that hurts, Right, That is hard. I'm not saying that that is easy, but here's the thing. Even though that hurts uh, in the near term, we are saved from uh, that uh, transformation that evil does within us if we, if we seek to hurt others. If we, if we choose to absorb the pain, if we choose to forgive, uh, that, that debt is diminished and we don't find ourselves warped. We, we keep possession of our soul. We continue to live as Christ calls us to live. It hurts. It, it costly. It will, it will cost us. This kind of costly forgiveness broke onto the scene um, in a national way. 2015, you might remember Dylan Roof, a young man, went into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Right? Young man went into this church Wednesday night Bible study and shot nine people. At his bond hearing, relatives of the victims showed up to speak. And they displayed for all the world to see 
this kind of costly forgiveness. Listen to a few examples. Nadine Collier, her mother was murdered there. She says to the young man that shot her mother, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. Um, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. Here is the granddaughter of one of the victims. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived and loved and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. And I just want to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. And lastly, one of the relatives says this to the one that murdered his uh, relative. I would just like him to know that the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent and confess. Give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change you and change your ways so that no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. That's costly forgiveness. And friends, you're probably not going to have Dylan Roof-type evil enter into your life this week, but some of you know unfathomable abuse and struggle with what it means to forgive there. And even the regular mundane hurts that happen week in and week out wear us down. So what's our hope to be able to, to take the debt on ourselves? It's this. Did you notice in the story, the first servant acts like a king when he comes to the second servant? The servant actually pronounces judgment. He, he executes the punishment. He acts like he's the king when really he's just a servant. Um, when the actual king shows mercy, it says that um, he took pity. And that word pity right there, it points us to Christ. The king points us to Christ because that word pity right there is used to describe Christ more than any other word to describe the emotional life of Christ. Christ takes pity on those who have wronged him. Uh, Solzhenitsyn almost got it right. Uh, the line between good and evil passes through every human heart except for one. Jesus Christ, God who became man, lived the perfect life. He didn't accure any debt. And yet he goes to the cross and he takes all of our debt, all of our wrong, all of our evil. And remember what his final words are? It is finished. Telestai. In the Greek, literally means it is paid. I have dealt with it. I have absorbed it. So it's not easy, friends, but if we want to forgive those who have wronged us, if we want to absorb the debt, we have to understand the infinite debt that we have been forgiven and what Christ has done for us. That's our only hope. It's personal. It's complex. It will not be easy, but we have to see how much we have been forgiven and this call on our life to forgive. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you impress these truths upon the souls of me and my friends that the only hope we have for forgiving those that have hurt us, the only hope that we have for absorbing the hurt and not making them pay it is to see the forgiveness we have in Christ, Him paying our debt, 
He paid it all. He did not require us to pay anything and press that upon us so that we might be able to love like you've called us to love and forgive like you've called us to forgive. Amen.